When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Friends and listeners, this Sunday, November 29th, you're invited to the first ever Be Real Watch Party. We're watching Home Alone at 1 Eastern, 10 Pacific, and all you need to join the fun is a Disney Plus account and a free Google Chrome extension. Hit us up on social media or RSVP to berealguys at gmail.com and we'll send you a link. We can all hang out in the chat, and afterward, Noah and I plan to record a mini-pod on the 90s holiday classic, including some live commentary clips from that day, if we're funny. Once again, that's this Sunday at 1 Eastern, 10 Pacific, and take a lesson from Kevin McAllister this holiday season. Stay safe and isolated when you can, eat junk, and watch rubbish. See you Sunday. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal. Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! What are my thoughts on recording a Bruce Lee podcast? There is no podcast, because the word podcaster does not exist. Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre hopping not podcast on the not on the playlist not podcast network uh this is be real my name's chance solem pfeiffer and i'm noah ballard thank you for humoring me everybody i i may i put him up to doing that we are so happy to be here in late november ahead of the would-be 80th birthday of global icon bruce lee we have watched and are going to focus on Three essential Bruce Lee movies today, Fist of Fury, Way of the Dragon, and Enter the Dragon. We got two incredible guests joining us. There's uh, Jeff Chang, who wrote a Criterion or essay accompanying the new box set that came out this summer and is in the midst of working on a book about Bruce Lee, noted author. And then, in a cool bit of symmetry, the professor who taught me one of Jeff Chang's influential books in college and it is a martial arts black belt herself and a lifelong uh, Bruce Lee devotee Professor Lori Dance is also joining us on the show so we got a packed one um, celebrating Bruce Lee's 80th Noah how you feeling yeah it's been great to see you Chance uh, and we'll pick it up next time because we've no, already no, got no, no, too no, much no 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 we already have too much content <laughs> I think part of the challenge of doing a bruce lee podcast to be totally frank is that he is someone for whom fans and lifelong fans of his work know so much there are volumes that can be said both about his life and about his afterlife um and if you don't know bruce lee as well which was i think both of us going into this how do you quickly get into it so just at the top here from research, I've pulled out like eight facts to try to help the uninitiated get a sense of who Bruce Lee is um, beyond... Before the recording, it was nine. What happened? 
one of them turned out to be fiction. Um, no, I what was this myth making? There's there are bullet points. I, I'm having trouble eyeballing this. Okay, the nine was just a guesstimation. That's fine. Noah, can I lay some facts down? I would love nothing more. So the son of a Cantonese opera performer, Bruce Lee had acted in 20-odd movies before age 18. But he'd never, Incredible. But he'd never properly starred in one until The Big Boss in 1971, which started this run of five or four and a half, depending how you count Game of Death, his five major martial arts films. And I'm sorry, this is a game of eight truths and a lie? I think that one's the lie. <laughs> no, you're too early. <laughs> She was born in the U.S., raised in Hong Kong, came back to the U.S. at 18, and then went back to Hong Kong to become a star, which happened almost instantly. So Big Boss is the highest grossing movie in Hong Kong history. And he was so popular in Hong Kong that they called the Green Hornet the Kato Show. His fighting style, which was essentially of his own invention, called Jeet Kune Do, or The Way of the Intercepting Fist, was all about adaptability. It branched out of Wing Chun Kung Fu um, and included street fighting and boxing and also, for the time, very like irregular amounts of physical training. Like He did stuff with weights and flexibility that other people didn't do, which really kind of synergized nicely with his place as a countercultural figure writ large and in martial arts. If I think, if I had a, a style of podcasting, it would be called the uh, interrupting comment. <laughs> The way of the interrupting comment. Jackie Chan, who worked as an extra and a stunt person on a couple of Bruce Lee films, always said that Bruce was the opposite of most famous people and that he was amazing to the people who worked underneath him and a, just a rude menace to anyone with authority. He was like very mean to studio execs and directors and such, which is, I think, not a bad way to go through life if you have the clout he had. For sure. Now, if you know Bruce Lee really well, you're going to roll your eyes at me. But if you don't, you might, you wouldn't be crazy if you're just like, he's an actor, right? To wonder how well could he actually fight. Reading Matthew Polly's biography of Lee this week, it is full of just dozens and dozens of people encountering him asking that same question, like, can you actually fight? Or are you just like a movie guy? And every single time he embarrasses the shit out of that person. Um, he's truly one of <laughs> like the best with in physical combat. Yes. <laughs> truly one of the best and more importantly, most creative martial artists who ever lived. So he passed away tragically at age 32, long thought to be a bad mix of prescription drugs. Matthew Polly in his book makes the extensive case that it was heat stroke and uh, a history thereof that made his brain swell and ultimately led to his death. <laughs> By 1978, there was such high demand for more Bruce that his last unfinished movie, Game of Death, was essentially propped up entirely around 11 minutes of footage that uh, Bruce had shot in between Way of the Dragon and Into the Dragon. We're jumping now to Fist of Fury. Like I said, we picked picked three main titles to to talk about today. So this is after Big Boss, which is his Hong Kong announcement. He'd worked with the director Lo Wei once. That movie, um, which is, I think, good. It's not as good as Fist of Fury, um, is about uh, 
a guy who goes to Bangkok to work at um, with some family at a ice factory that turns out to be a drug trafficking ring. Um, I see a pattern emerging in these movies. One of the interesting things about that movie is that famously in Hong Kong like martial arts films at the time, the scripts were just like completely bare bones. It was just like an idea and then fight here, fight here, fight here. So there's this feud that's brew, brew, brewing between Bruce Lee and Lo Wei. So at the start of the movie, it's sort of positioned like James Tien is going to be the star of, of Big Boss and Bruce is going to be kind of like in the background and then like as they're filming the the legend goes like they kind of realize like all right Bruce is this good so James's character is going to be killed off like in sort of like real time competition and from there Bruce Lee launches forward into the movie and you know into our cinema history and our collective consciousness so let's say that launches us into Fist of Fury Noah do you want to synopsize 1972 Fist of Fury a young man seeks vengeance for the death of his teacher He's unstoppable, unbeatable, unbelievable. He's Bruce Lee, the master of karate, kung fu, delivering that Chinese connection. So we're in what, like 1910s China? Shanghai, yeah. Shanghai, yeah. And there's, of course... A lot of conflict between the Chinese and the Japanese, mm-hmm. Boxer Rebellion, etc. Uh, all of Japan's imperialist misdeeds, which kind of play into the nationalist fervor, um, pro-Chinese nationalist fervor at the heart of at the heart of this movie. Um, yeah. So you have these two competing martial arts schools: the Chinese one and the Japanese one. And at the outset, the teacher I just mentioned has died, but it's a little, it's a Poison, little maybe? questionable. Poison question mark. But then at the funeral of the teacher, we're kind of introduced to the school and it's it's different players. And then the of course the Japanese school, the Japanese guys show up with a big sign that they've framed that said the sick men of Asia, and just they say, hey, this is the gift that we bought when you're when you're like the headmaster of your school died, like, fuck you. Right. And that's just, you know, if they really hadn't done that, if they hadn't like gone out to the art store and like made this sign and like brought it with them, none of this movie would transpire. But that is a bridge too far um, for Chen Zen, who's the, the Bruce Lee character, who's like the best student at the school. But like he... He's still at the the young age where if revenge if revenge is to be had, he can't control himself from not having it. One of the things I really like about this movie visually is that Bruce is always dressed. Chen Zhen is always dressed in opposition to everyone else. Like when he shows up late to the funeral wearing stark white, and everyone else is kind of grieving in black, right? Um, that's a crazy scene too when he's like in all white and then he's like trying to take the dirt off the guy's tomb yeah and it's just like true hysteria it is true hysteria this one this movie is really engages in a really interesting way 
And you're not really getting like Bruce Lee's philosophy yet in the movies, but you're getting a character who I think the main flaw is that he feels his emotions too much to, I don't know, execute martial arts in like a ethical, like lasting sort of way. Mm -hmm. And he becomes an, he's a true like Avenger. He really is sort of like a Batman figure almost. You know, you're in this sort of like metropolis with all these different like nationalized sectors um, and it feels mm. kind of lawless in that way. And, you know, he soon starts like wandering the night, like sometimes in disguise and in that very Batman way, like ushering one corrupt person away from everyone else to interrogate them. And then you have... You've and got then the, strings them up. Right, Yeah. I think one of my favorite scenes in all three of these movies is the one where he's just like pretending to be like the guy who's pulling the rickshaw and then he flips around and picks the fucking rickshaw up and tosses it across the street with the guy in it. It's It's incredible. All of these movies have such a colorful cast of villains to be dispatched. And this is not the best cast, I don't think, but it like might be the funniest. There definitely is like one... Japanese student who I'm not exaggerating really looks like he's wearing like a 99 cent Donald Trump wig. Do you know who I'm talking about? I I do know who you're talking about. And what is that about? That's, that's his style. What are, Uh, but, (laughs) but it's in the 2020 context is a lot, you know, more satisfying when he like gets a, you know, a, a bottom of one's foot to the neck. The use of slow motion from Lowey in these movies is incredible. Uh, yeah, for and sure. You were laughing at me earlier in the week when I said that like, you know, with some of these movies you're kind of like working through um some shaky acting and sort of, you know, in this one you're kind of like going back and forth just between two sets that like are not that distinct or interesting. You're just like we got to go back to this school. Then we got to go back to this school. But the action and the street don't forget the street i won't forget the street but the action is sublime and i don't mean oh, that yeah. just to be like it's great i mean that it is directed to show that in his rage that chenzen is leaving behind almost the physical reality of the combat when he decides like to put his full spirit into killing someone and that's it's amazing when it happens to see time and physics sort of suspended that way. And it makes for a great contrast to like the real time speed and veracity that you've been watching of the Bruce Lee, like kick, kick, kick pause. Right. Well, that's, that's just so fascinating. Uh, just with the tone and the pacing of this, these movies, it's just like, yes, there is that kind of build up to, okay, when are we going to get to the next epic fight sequence and you can kind of tell you know the sets themselves which we're kind of mocking here but the sets themselves are built artfully to like be destroyed in big ways when people go through windows and like downstairs and like you know whatever happens to you know occur during these fights but this one really sells like the bruce lee is going to win this fight it's just it's a matter of how long it's going to take him totally yeah this is a this movie is pure demolition and it's really only the theme of it that will make him pay the piper for that demolition. 
That's what I'm saying. It's the him having like a little bit of an edge on all of his opponents uh, is the reason you kind of know in that, you know, true tragedy sense that he can't some part of him will not survive. Let's talk about Bruce Lee's acting in like while he fights, because I think we all heard of the screams and the noises, which are the screams are incredible. Classic. What else did you pick up on? This one to me, I think is the maybe the most compelling performance of all of them because it really firmly roots the movie onto him and going between scenes where he's like trying to like wrestle with loss for the first time. And so you have these kind of intimate scenes where he's like trying not to cry, trying not to get like too big for the frame or something. Mm. And then that's juxtaposed with him in various costumes, like running around, being very physical, like throwing set pieces from, you know, side of frame to side of frame. And so I think this one really lets him cover, you know, what's maybe, you know, not the most nuanced, I'm sad now acting with the, here's my rage. Like this is what's naturally built from those, you know, attempts at uh, emotionally impactful scenes. Totally. I found myself sort of fascinated by his eye movement and where he's looking a lot of the times. Um, The fights can be very compelling because he does when when the opponent is truly and correctly underestimated, he does a lot of like no look stuff to be showy, right? Oh, sure. Like two behind the head punches with no (laughs) eye contact. But a lot of the times when he's like sizing up an opponent, it's almost, especially in this movie, like he's trying to look down. Like yeah, it's a lot of feet himself. checking. Yeah, well, and it, I don't know. I don't know if it's, it's like shoegaze. What is he considering right now? Because if the alternative is just like staring at your opponent all the time, these scenes would hardly sing. Like that would get old so fast if he just stared everyone down. I think for me that those like close-ups of his eyes, because then it usually like has a nice shot where it looks at the opponent's body. Mm-hmm. So I almost took like the downward gaze as him not looking the, at like as a person, but looking at a series of you know flaws that can be exploited on this person he needs to you know take down, and the fact that he can do it so quickly is like that's his thing. Yeah, um, and that's his his heightened ability here. So this is the only one of these movies that has a you know, capital R romance and a kiss with uh Nora Miao plays uh Yuan. Um and they they kiss when Chen Zen is is hiding out. What do you think of their dynamic? And Nora comes back again in Way of the Dragon. I think he's like very sexy. It's funny to see that interrogated here, and it's funny to see that used as a force against, especially in this one, in, like, the takedown of Petrov. Like, Petrov's the whitest guy you're going to find, and the fact that, like, that sort of, you know, more focused and targeted masculinity being used against this, like, hulking Western beefcake is, like, kind of an interesting foil to my idea of, you know, what a Hollywood sex guy looks like. 
Bruce Lee's such a beautiful person. And I found myself, right. um, this comes up more in the next movie, but just like his smiles and all that is conveyed by the, like the degrees of his knowing little smiles. I mean, he has movie star qualities that yes are completely, you know, they don't have anything to do with how well he can kick. Like there's a reason that, he became an overnight sensation. It's that's the thing. Cause it's not the kick. It's the little look that he does after the kick or like the little taunt that he does right before the kick right. uh, that makes him good. And I don't think it's that those little nuances like don't carry over maybe to like the emotional grounding of his performance with other characters in, you know, more dialogue heavy scenes. But I think when it comes to the way he physically reacts to people in space, like there is an intimacy between him and Petrov. There is an intimacy between him and uh, Walker, Texas Ranger, Chuck Norris, (laughs) where you kind of like, they're, they're going through like an, an exchange of intimacy when they look at each other and when they, you know, give each other a moment to get up and like dust yourself off. Like I'm going to kill you, but like, I'm going to give you the, you know, the wherewithal to, to do it with some dignity here. But that's, that's a power dynamic. Totally. I think it makes sense given his life experience right around this. I think he's about 29 or 30 here. And I think probably his, some of his most complex relationships are with students and opponents and so he understands like what the small quirks of that relationship can be in a way that is sort of just overridden by hammy melodrama when it comes to romantic love on screen. Indeed. Shall we tell people how we rate movies on Be Real and then rate Fist of Fury? On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered unfortunately include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I don't think this is as good as one of the movies coming up but i am going to give it a good good the ultimate sort of like cosmic punishment for this character letting his skills and attached emotions like lead him too far like create both a richness and a surprise at the end that if it were a more straightforward movie it wouldn't have and then yeah it's just it's some really stupendous um sometimes literally transcendental combat good good yeah i agree with that i think technically of course it's really really good and like if you know you're going in for the martial arts like as the centerpiece here uh 
it's it holds up surprisingly well. I think I was maybe expecting a bit more hokiness uh, to the combat. And of course, as you texted me, Chance, there is that like every time someone hits or kicks, there's that, that fly swatter sound to really sure. like enunciate the the contact between, you know, skin to skin there. But I think it's it's really compelling to watch. Uh, and there's a certain charisma from Bruce Lee that is infectious and you kind of want to keep going with it, you know, even in the goofier moments and the more melodramatic moments, as you say. And then I think you can see why this movie was such successful Hollywood fare because it has that very like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid kind of ending, like almost uh, a copied ending shot. Uh, and I think it's awareness of what the the movie going expectation will be. Uh, you know, yeah, definitely makes it a good good. From there, let's go to our conversation with the great Jeff Chang. Our guest today is an author, historian, and journalist who's chronicled hip-hop history in his book Can't Stop, Won't Stop, YA edition coming out in March. And he's illuminated complex issues and perceptions of race in America in books like Who We Be and We Gonna Be Alright and the corresponding YouTube series. He's founded record labels and publications alike. He's the vice president of narrative arts and culture at the Race Forward Racial Justice Nonprofit in Oakland. And his next book is a Bruce Lee biography. It's an honor to have him with us. Jeff Chang, hello. Hey, how's it going, Chance? What's up, Noah? Hey, how you doing? Good, good, good. Thanks for hopping on. Yeah, thanks for being with us. Definitely. Jeff, how did you know you wanted to write a book about Bruce Lee? Oh, I mean, the 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 book um, kind of came to me. Uh, there was an amazing editor uh, who was uh, uh, really interested after reading Can't Stop, Won't Stop and doing something that had like kind of an Asian American focus. Um, and he kind of landed on this idea of Bruce Lee. So he brought it to me. Like who, who doesn't want to write about Bruce Lee if offered a, uh, the opportunity to be able to do that. It's really interesting, Jeff, when you put this together, this idea with the editor, you know, what was your familiarity with Lee's career and what do you think like the general consciousness is in America in 2020 almost 21 now with Bruce Lee and like what does he mean ah uh, big questions so you know for me of course just like I think every other um Asian American Pacific Islander kid just really any kid period right uh growing up um in the eighties and the nineties, like Bruce Lee was everything. Yeah. Everybody wanted to be Bruce. You know, I, I was really, really young when he, when he passed away. Um, but had probably seen his movie. I couldn't even tell you the first time I saw his movies. Uh, and I couldn't tell you the number of times I've seen his movies. Um, since then it's, it's gotta be in the hundreds. Um, wow. I can count it. Right. Like it just like it, on TV, uh, in the theaters, like uh, on DVDs, on Blu-rays, on every format possible, right? Um, he's now too, like from a social standpoint, probably the the best known Asian American, you know, ever in history, right? Uh, and so he stands he stands for a lot. And I think I've been of the generation, you know, 
the the sort of giant robot generation, right? The sort of generation that like Phil you angry Asian man, uh, you know, Jeff Yang, uh, they have this podcast called They Call Me Bruce. Like I'm of the generation who sees him as like a empowerment icon, you know, sort of a, a Muhammad Ali type figure for Asian Americans and, and, and for Pacific Islanders folks who are, are from the Pacific in general. I think, you know, what does he mean now? It's really interesting. I think every generation kind of reinvents Bruce Lee uh, for themselves. And um, so it's interesting to see how my son watches Enter the Dragon. Because for him, it's like Enter the Dragon is not necessarily revolutionary the way that it was for <laughs> us. You know what I mean? Like he's he's uh, he's like in film school now. He's like a, he's a sophomore in college and he sits there and watches Enter the Dragon, you know, th- and this kid grew up studying martial arts and he always grew up watching Kung Fu movies with me and, and Bruce Lee films and that kind of stuff. And so for him now to sit down as an adult and watch the movie, like, you know, he's, he's taking it in differently. I'm still processing what it means for him. Um, but I think that Bruce Lee is always going to be an icon because of all the things that he stands for. I'm curious like hearing you talk about I mean, this larger than life character. And of course, this character that you've been, this person that you've been familiar with since you were a kid, like how do you kind of put aside those preconceived notions and approach trying to write a biography? I love that question though. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's one of the things is breaking it down, right? Kind of by now there are, again, multiple generations of myth-making around Bruce Lee. And so the the hardest thing I think has been to try to remind myself as I'm moving through the process, like this was a, this was a dude, this is just a guy right? <laughs> walking the earth. Right. Like, you know, he's not the Bruce Lee of like RZA's like, you know, Wu-Tang imagination or my, you know, youthful imagination or of, you know, people like, um, you know, in Croatia or around the world who are kind of like holding him up as a human rights icon, right? This is, he was just a guy. And so there are moments where uh, I just think about it and I think, gosh, what was it, what was it like, right? Like you're on a big ship, you know, you're in steerage, right? You're 19 years old uh, or actually 18 years old at the time. Um, You've, got like the biggest movie of your life that you've just made. You've done this incredible performance in it. Um, And this is a movie, by the way, that most of us um, in our generation in the U.S. haven't been able to see. It's called The Orphan. It was a movie that he made um, as a teenager. And it's sort of this this movie that um, people kind of hail as a a rebel without a cause, right, For, for Hong Kong during this period where Hong Kong's youth population is exploding. Like they're experiencing their, their version of the baby boom. And, and, you know, and, and so your, your moment of stardom is about to happen and your parents are shipping you off to, to the U S alone and you're in sitting in steerage. Like, what does that feel like? You know what I mean? Like how, how do we even understand and reconcile the Bruce now that we know with that 18 year old, you know, young man uh, who has basically had his entire like career ripped away from him. 
have there been moments where you were gener- like genuinely surprised to learn something that you hadn't realized was part of his biography? Yeah, I I mean over and over again really, you know. Um I got to speak with um his his first kind of true love, uh a Japanese American um a woman who, you know, appears uh in in Be Water um and who is sort of yeah, Bruce was Bruce, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like I just, you know, like you kind of, you kind of think, gosh, like you're, you're Bruce Lee's girlfriend. Um, like, why didn't it work out? <laughs> you, know <what> I mean? <laughs> you know, and and finding out that she, this is a woman named Amy Sanbo, right? Was like fierce as fuck right like just, there's no other way to put it like i don't i'm sure amy would appreciate it if she heard this actually um but she was amazing you know she she had uh and she was one of the people who really schooled bruce she's the one that gets him into soul music you know teaches him how to 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 dance how to really dance in the american kind of way none of this like cha-cha kind of cute stuff from hong kong you know basically she said i outgrew bruce you know what i mean like like (laughs) bruce was just not mature he was really immature Mm. you know and just you know so i was sitting her sitting with her in in arizona with her family and just like her being able to open up this whole world god i was falling out of that chair so you brought up a really interesting, maybe kind of under-recognized like inflection point in his life, which is, you know, him on a on a boat at 19 coming back over here when he might have been about to be a star. And I was reading Matthew Polly's book this week and thinking, you know, hearing all the stories of how he basically like put together his, um, you know, gang of students in Seattle as he just like met person after person after person and kind of brought him brought them in to teach them. And that got me wondering if you could watch and or write whatever you want i don't want to make you do extra work if you could watch and or write a a biopic that snapshots one day week month of his life what would you focus on i think that that particular period is so interesting like who is this young bruce he is living in a small bedroom uh above the restaurant that he's working in where he's literally working for his rent you know, he's busting tables, he's washing dishes. Um, and, uh, and at the same time, like he's practicing, right. And he's reading books and he's, um, I, maybe I'm thinking about this cause we're in a pandemic, you know, like the isolate, what was the isolated Bruce like before he met Linda, you know what I mean? Like before he got all of, uh, the gang together and then like, how did that gang change him? How did Linda change him? How did Amy change him before that? You know? He's like teaching sort of Wing Chun. He's teaching a mishmash of things that he's learned over the years and things that he's studying. And the the gang that he's kind of with, right, is these are all folks who he's practicing on as well. Like he's learning things. He's like practicing like every people that she can probably ever talk to with uh, of Bruce uh, has this story about, yeah, you know, Bruce, sometimes he just, he didn't want to teach. He just wanted to try this thing out on us, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so it's a very, very interesting and formative uh, kind of period. Of course, all of, all of what comes next is, is why it's so interesting. I wondered 
if you could help us square once we get into the movies, um, some of the the realism that Bruce is obsessed with in the martial arts scenes is totally novel compared to the um, it's like Cantonese opera inspired choreography that came before. Um, and there's all kinds of stories of him being like, it's got to be real. It's got to be real. Can I hit you? Can I actually kick you? Um, so he's obsessed with that. But then it also seems like he has a really keen sense of the artificiality involved with making oneself a movie star, whether that's, um, you know, charm or wardrobe or having somebody in a fight, like rip off your shirt at exactly the right point. How do you think those those forces square in him? Uh, it's such a good question. You know, it, Bruce, I think first and foremost, I think this is the argument that Matthew Polly makes, um, that he's first and foremost um, an entertainer, right? He's, 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 uh, he's uh, an actor. Um, and so I don't think that that sort of artifice is ever far from his mind. I mean, even the, the notion of jump kicks, like in martial arts in real martial arts, nobody does a jump kick. Why would you do a jump kick? You're in the air, you're suspended. It's very easy if you're in the right position to knock you down and then you're on the ground and now what, right? Like it's just jump kicks are stupid, right? There's no place for them in actual martial arts. Um, but he brings them in into uh, into this, and they become sort of a signature, right, of his movies. In his martial arts work, uh, and this is sort of an offshoot of his younger sort of like whatever, like street fighting man type of days, right? That he had to, that that are the reason that he has to leave Hong Kong. Um, it was literally about like the classic, like, is your style better than my style? I think not. Let's prove it, you know? <laughs> um, and so he's like looking for, you know, the, the, the things that will end the fight as quickly as possible. So Bruce brings together these things in his, his, his art. And so in the big boss, uh, what you see literally is a mix of these sort of, older kind of um, very big kind of uh, motions um, that are very Cantonese opera that are very like, even like Wushu, like Kung Fu, like forms type stuff, right? Uh, where the motions are big, they're circular, they're, they're, they're um, dramatic, right? And at the same time, you just have scenes where he's pounding people as fast as possible. And what he he's finding out how to do in the big boss between sort of the arguments that he's having with his choreographer um, and the stuff that he is coming up with himself, right, to try out is this sort of new style that really is um, moving us uh, into sort of a new moment um, of filmmaking with Kung Fu films, the, they kind of point to like the mid 60s, late 60s as the turning point where there's this new set of Kung Fu films that kind of um, become really, really popular. And with him, he's finding the formula that actually works, that makes it possible for Hong Kong cinema at that particular moment to go global. 
uh, I want to make a sort of even bigger point here, which is the the sort of realism in combat um, is something that actually really influences all action movie making um, in the U.S. and around the world. Right? It's not it's not about these sort of carefully staged or like choreographed types of of things. You actually see the switch now to real hyperviolence, right? Uh, or realistic hyperviolence, right? And you, all you got to do is maybe compare like any of Clint Eastwood's like Westerns, like from, you know, the late, the mid to late sixties to like what you're seeing in the seventies, like French connection or mm-hmm. some of these other types of action flicks that are coming out. Right. That's part of like the joy of being able to watch these films again and again and again. Right. Uh, is to be able to kind of see, like the evolution of of the action star and the evolution of of um, him as a person, um, but yeah, I mean, like I I think of the closing scene, right, of him uh, after his the closing scene of his fight with Chuck Norris. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When yeah. he like he like the expression on his face is just uh, like there's a book in that. I think. He has that face in like the Fist of Fury way of the dragon and Enter the Dragon where he's like killed the big boss and there's something like this euphoria that has kind of come over him, but also sort of like a deep reverence for the fact that he's like taken a life of someone equal to him or something. And the camera sits on him for like five or ten seconds. And it's like that's usually the most moving part of the film. Yeah, and in Way of the Dragon, there's also that layer of like like respect and even regret, you know, yes. like he doesn't feel great about it. He feels it, it. It looks like he feels really tortured about it. And there's so, there's so much to write about in that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like the evolution from, you know, the, the big boss where he's just sort of dispatching, you know, this, this evil guy, um, you know, handily and viciously. Right to to that sort of layers of emotion that you see in his face in Way of the Dragon. Um, you know, there's a sort of deep evolution in that. And I just like, that's that's one of the things where I go, damn, you know, like what would have happened had he had a script that met like the the force of his talent or the or the or the depth of his his talent. You know, what if he had a director? Right. What if he had ever had a director? No disrespect to to all the directors of of the movies that he did make. But what if he did have a director like King Hu or somebody like that, who like was able to kind of layer things on and, and make the story uh, deeper and that kind of thing, what would have happened? God, you know, like that's like the, one of the great film what ifs, you know? So 1973 is the moment and enter the dragon is the vehicle around which Hollywood is like, okay, we're crossing this over now. And that's sort of exactly what it did. And that Bruce wasn't around to see it is like the hugest tragedy um, because he had built this infrastructure, hoisted all of this up on his, on his, you know, he's five, seven. So not very broad shoulders. Jeff, my parting question for you. Um, if you were say five minutes out from a meeting that you were feeling kind of edgy about kind of nervous, what Bruce clip would you fire up? to get in the headspace you wanted to be in. <laughs> That's dope. There's this scene in, in Fist of Fury. I know exactly the scene too. There's a scene of Fist of Fury 
where he literally is, uh, he's there in the dojo and it's sort of like an overhead um, kind of shot. And he's literally there and, and there's like this half circle of, of karate like practitioners trying to get at him. He's literally like moving with his toes a little bit to the left and then moving with his toes a little bit to the right. And the whole <laughs> crowd is like moving to the left and right with him. Right. Yeah. And the, there's that, that's like, that's what I, I use in my head often when I know that I have to like make a presentation or something like that, like <laughs> I can be here so that like I can get the whole move crowd moving to the left or moving to the right to like be able to, you know, to, to follow me uh, for, for what I'm going to have to do now. Um, I, I invoke that often in my head. So Chance, thank you for that. That's really dope. <laughs> like, thank you. I'm so glad you had one ready to roll. Um, well, Jeff, this was such a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time and uh, God best of luck with the book. We really look forward to, to holding it one day. Appreciate you guys. Take care. The big boss, enter the dragon. Now, the ultimate, the way of the dragon. Dragon whips his tail. Starring Bruce Lee conquering evil in Rome and using all his fighting skills in this authentic martial arts adventure. Jeff, thank you so much. That was that was great. I wish him all the best. I feel like in my role in book publishing, I like know the torment that an author goes through in this process of the book writing. So thank you so much for making time when he's clearly still like, it's good to get the raw data from him, but I'm, I'm interested to see where it goes. Totally. That's well put. Okay. Let's talk about uh, way of the dragon, 1972. Bruce has had such power struggles with director Lowway over the course of fist of fury and, big boss that he's kind of worked himself more into being able to just direct the fight scenes himself by in fist of fury. And, you know, he's pushing low way to give him a, like a more fleshed out script all the time. Um, but then they have this sort of like feud in the press over low way being like, I made him a star and Bruce being very upset about that. And he already, Bruce already has a thing about authority. Right. Um, so with way of the dragon, He's essentially like, all right, I'm going to break the two previous Hong Kong box office records, which I've, I myself set, and I'm going to write, direct, and star in what, interestingly, this is, I'm stealing Matthew Polly's term here, but he thought about this as a spaghetti Eastern, so to speak, which is <laughs> going, to, going to Italy to springboard back to the States. And this is a movie that's set in Rome. No, do you want to synopsize Way of the Dragon? Sure. Um, a man, Bruce Lee, visits his relatives at their restaurant in Italy and has to help them defend against brutal gangsters harassing them. Right. Other than setting, which is not justified. I think the other thing that's weird about the jump into this movie is that it begins as a, a screwball comedy. Yeah. Where Bruce Lee's at the airport. Is this the airport clock? That's kind of how I felt when this opened. Um, he's at the airport, not going anywhere. He's just like hanging out by like the United First Class Lounge. And then he goes into the First Class Lounge, can't afford the hamburger. So he orders seven bowls of soup. 
and eats them all like in a goofy like soup eating montage. Yeah, and, and then, then has to go to the bathroom for like the next hour. Yeah, the next hour of the movie is him trying is asking people to point him in the direction of the bathroom, including his cousin that he's like traveled there to see, who's at the airport and he's got like a picture of her and she's the only person in the frame, so like obviously he's meeting her. Right. And then yeah, they're on this you know, this opening credits drive through Rome and then the the plot of the movie takes over. But when it becomes an action movie, I think it really does pick up. Right. That just takes so but that's long. the first like 20 minutes of the movie. And there's also like some goofy like people working at a restaurant or big goofballs <laughs> stuff in it too. The waiters who I think are, are I'm sorry, bad. Like that's some pretty like hokey, hammy acting, which makes sense because he just cast a bunch of his friends, including his like live-in servant as the waiters in the restaurant. Well, the deep irony of the movie on a narrative level is the fact that the cousin blames the like Italian mobsters for the restaurant not being able to make money, but really what's keeping the restaurant from making money is the employees that she has who are just often found away from the customers (laughs) that are there in the, in the alley talking about Chinese boxing, but like not being very good at it. No. So really what it's almost like, you know, one of those, shows on food network where like uh somebody goes into a restaurant it's like actually the problem you thought you had with the mafia that's not it it's that the menu (laughs) isn't working this is like bar rescue but it's not the mafia right yeah it's it's restaurant confidential but also it is a little bit the mafia's fault that like people don't come back for a a second helping Uh, so he we have to dispatch them too there's some good you very wisely compared this to a proto Jackie Chan movie earlier in the sense that like he's a not only see a fish out of water but he's also portrayed as a a country boy who like doesn't understand a lot of the nuances of what's going on and then you right. have actual moments of action comedy one of the best moments in the movie that's not just pure fighting is after he's sort of dispatched all of the gangsters in the restaurant uh, some actual customers walk through the door and he has to like stop one of his kicks at the last second before he like decapitates one of these incoming customers. Right. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, come in, come in, come in. But even like the moment where he like tracks down the sniper and he like gets him with one of his little darts and like hits him oh, in the yeah. butt. yeah, he's big into darts in this movie all of a sudden. He's big into throwing darts in this movie. But that's like a like a rush hour visual joke. Like yeah. the, somebody gets hurt in their tushy. Sure. You know? So yeah, this movie is sort of ridiculous and all over the place. And if you are like Noah watching it today, you're texting your friend and being like, when is Chuck Norris going to show up? He's the third build actor and he doesn't right. come into the last eight minutes. Yeah, he's like the big, big bad who the John Ben, who plays the Italian crime boss, like calls in. And of course, he calls in Chuck Norris and two who plays Colt and then two of Chuck Norris's students because <laughs> we got to get some more bodies in here. I just love that these movies are like more bodies, man. Let's put more weird, different, diverse bodies in front of Bruce Lee so he can kick them down. It's never enough people. 
No. This this body doesn't it knows no too many actors. Right. Um I love that. And they so. all look really especially the white guys all look identical through all three of these movies. They're all oh, like shaggy haired Bob Baker looks guys. so much like Bob Wall. Yes. So much so that I thought it was the same guy. Of course. I had to look it up to make sure. Yeah. You know, but like the one guy with the face scar looks like the same guy with the face scar in this one. That is the same guy. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Bob Wall's in this one and the next one, but Bob Baker was Petrov in the last one. Right. And uh, John Saxon has nothing to do with anything else. Nope. Not yet. Um, Not yet. So, but it's just so interesting to me that, because well, of course, after rewatching this, I had to rewatch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because of the iconic Bruce Lee scene, which now doesn't feel that realistic. I mean, of course, people have criticized that it wasn't realistic leading up to that, but ha- actually, having seen the movies now and I guess talked to people about his persona, it feels pretty like a cocky, overly cocky representation of him. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting to then put that through the, the the Alvin Schwartz producer played by Al Pacino, like rule of movie making to say that, oh, the heavy will never become the leading man when this is Chuck Norris's first movie and what catapults him to success is having his butt kicked at the end of this movie. Right, that's true. But he wouldn't be in any more Bruce Lee movies. He was asked to be in Enter the Dragon. He's like, no, you got to kick my ass on screen one time, and that's enough. Right, yeah, you got to keep it uh, Got to keep it easy. Sure. Not too much. So let's talk about that scene. Incredible. I, <laughs> I would argue it completely saves the movie. I would argue that the movie up until then, because of its sort of like genre insecurities and because of like, I mean, there's great fight scenes throughout. Don't get me wrong. But like the the plot here is pretty loose at best. And then it becomes unclear like where these hench people are coming from. Like you said, with the body count getting higher and higher. But none of that makes any difference the second that uh, Chuck Norris gets off that Pan Am plane and pulls down his sunglasses. Because it's on then. And then they go fight at the Coliseum. At At the fucking Coliseum, of course. And I was slightly fooled. So, like, most of the combat is on a soundstage, but they did have a... Obviously. All right, all right. But they did have a day of filming where, like, you know, like the hunt beforehand, where uh, right. Kong and Lung him is chasing the, walking uh, around. Right. And I love that... Chasing he, Pingo way down the stairs there. You know what I love is the B-roll of the stray cats. Yeah, what is going on with the stray cats? Well, first of all, I just think it's, like, interesting, and they were like, let's film this. But yeah. I I think like textually it works really well because they're in the fucking Coliseum and all of us like where you know people are famous for watching tigers and lions battle yeah. gladiators and then all of a sudden you have like these cats like w- like really eyeballing these humans as they transform into like you know these mythical beasts before their eyes. It's I think it's really Incredible. smart. However, if you didn't get like the beast metaphor, please watch Bruce Lee rip out a patch of Chuck Norris's chest hair. I knew I couldn't get through a lion reference without you connecting mane to mane. Indeed. 
that is a visceral moment when he like blows the hair out of his hand. Incredible. Oh, they have this exchange though. That's yeah. when the movie's at its best. Maybe that's why I don't mind the dubbing because like when it comes to them communicating, they they manage to do it without speaking. People who know way more than us have, will diagram this scene. And part of the reason it's beloved as a martial arts scene is that like the way they start, they're doing these very orderly kicks and Colt is kind of beating him. He kind of has the upper hand. And then mm-hmm. you see Bruce Lee kind of loosen up and really he's doing, there's so much Muhammad Ali to the way he dances and prances around um, and starts to use his hand speed and fluidity to, to take people down. But yeah, people right. say that the, um, the disciplinary fluidity of this fight tells a story of its own if you know what you're looking mm-hmm. at and i would totally believe that well, i think technically like if you, chuck norris has him beat but when it comes to just like guy on guy punching each other in the face that's when bruce lee because there's like a sequence there where he punches him like four or five times just like back to back to back to back in the face yeah and that just like stuns him you know and then you have that great rack focus when he's just like trying to shake it off yeah that's pretty good uh yeah and it really i love that like feeling the the tone of like the okay how many rules are we gonna follow because when when the gloves come off it's a really different fight yeah one interesting fun fact here and this is kind of classic bruce like understanding his cockiness and self-aggrandizement i think is important because i think that that's like one of the things that people particularly don't like about the tarantino portrayal is like yes he could be a very arrogant man but like not in the kind of way where he would hold court and sermonize in front of 25 like extras and just like brag about whatever like that wasn't really his thing what he would do is call up chuck norris and be like be in my movie but you need to put on 25 pounds so you look really big when i beat you and chuck norris gets very insecure because he feels himself to be flabby to have basically lost his physique because bruce made him put on 20 pounds in three weeks incredible it's that kind of one-upsmanship of like we're friends i'm doing you a favor but you might have to make yourself look kind of bad in the process yeah humble yourself a little bit in the process yeah totally um yeah it's it's again it's an amazing scene that salvages what is otherwise, I think, a pretty ridiculous, all-over-the-place movie. So, for me, a bad good. Yeah, I think it is a bad good, because I think there's moments of it that make the watch worth it. Um, but there are there's some really bizarre shit in here. You know, there's some topless stuff uh, when he misunderstands or doesn't uh what that italian woman wants from him early on mm-hmm. um there's some pretty goofy gunplay i would say yes <laughs> with the the sniper and the fireworks going off um but the last 10 minutes are i mean it's iconic movie scene magic uh you know really setting the tone for really anything up till the present uh, when it comes to like hand-to-hand combat. You okay. know, when I was watching uh, Will Smith fight himself in uh, uh, Gemini Man, uh, I think that that's related. So that's Way of the Dragon. 
Let's go now to our second guest, uh, one of the most beloved teachers of my entire life um, who can speak to Bruce Lee's um, kicks and his cultural impact. Here's Laurie Dance. She is an associate professor of sociology and ethnic studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and the associate director of the Institute for Ethnic Studies. And for me, an educator synonymous with this Bruce Lee quote, learning is never cumulative. It is a movement of knowing which has no beginning and no end. Lori Dance, hello. Ooh, I love that. Thank you, Chance. I'm. Thank you for being on, on the program. I appreciate it. I want to talk about... Um, your your scholarship and your fandom and your your martial arts career and whatever you're comfortable talking about so let me just put it out there in the beginning when and how did uh bruce lee start to become an important figure in your life Ooh, okay i can remember like the moment so i'm in the sixth grade so this is in the 70s i'm in the sixth grade and i'm at my best friend's house and we're sitting at their dining room table i can look into the family room and see the television. And so I'm sixth grade chit-chatting with my best friend and her older brother, who's my first chosen brother. To this day, I call him my brother. He walks in and he's about seven years older, you know, so that means he's cool because he's a teenager and stuff. And we're chit-chatting and he looks at the TV and he goes, shh. And so he's fixed on the TV because there's a preview for a movie. And I look at that preview and I'm fixed on it in part because he's fixed on it. Right. But then I look and I can't take my eyes off of the preview. And then when it's over, I said, who was that? He said, that was Bruce Lee. Who's Bruce Lee? And the rest is history. Mm. So he told me who Bruce Lee was. He neglected to tell me one thing, which was Bruce Lee had died, I think three months before. So I missed that. So I didn't know. So, um, so I immediately had to know everything about Bruce Lee and that this time there was no internet and Bruce Lee was not in the encyclopedias. So I went to the drugstore to the martial arts magazine section. Um, and there were all of these and I didn't get posthumous. So I didn't get the fact that it had his birth date and, the and the, and the second date, yeah, I'm in the sixth grade. I didn't know that meant he had died. So but yeah, so that's how I found about out about Bruce Lee. And so then how did he evolve in your estimation as you started to, I suppose, as you took up martial arts earlier and then? Well, actually, it was because of Bruce Lee that I took up martial arts. Because okay. earlier, yeah, what I had wanted to do was dance. Um, and I wanted to do ballet. I was mesmerized by ballerinas. Unfortunately, um, in the small southern town I was from in Virginia... Um, they didn't teach little black girls to be ballerinas. So I eventually, I begged my mom, it took like a year to let me take martial arts. And my hometown of Petersburg, Virginia, I didn't have any Kung Fu schools, but there was a karate class at the rec center. And so that's how I got involved in martial arts in this karate class called Kyokushin Kai. It's a Japanese style, but hey, it was a martial art. So. Sure. And then very slowly, I mean, I was like, I wanted to be like Bruce Lee. Didn't matter. I mean, this is also the beauty of someone who's younger and isn't stuck into a particular pattern. I didn't care 
that he was that Bruce Lee was a he, that Bruce Lee was Chinese. You know, um, I wanted to be just like Bruce Lee. We talked about this a little bit earlier in the week, but you have also um, lectured on uh, intersectionality and intersectional theory, um, using Bruce Lee kind of as as the lens for um, for some of those talks. So I wanted to hear from you what what makes him a a fitting or apt figure um, to talk about those concepts through. Um, now the, the the hardcore theorists are going to nail me in this, but intersectionality really looks at how we no no in no human being is simply a single identity. Wherever you go, I mean, no one is simply a gender. No one is simply a class background. No one is is simply a religious affiliation or non affiliation. Um, but those identities that matter the most, intersectionality helps us to understand how in any given context, our identities may be activated. And we may have overlapping privileges, we may have overlapping disadvantages, or we might have some mixture of privilege and disadvantage in any given space. Bruce Lee was male, so that's, that, that's a privileged identity background, right? So he was male. But then when he comes to the US, um, he's Chinese. People mistake him as Chinese and immigrant, but he's an American citizen. He's born in the United States. But anyway, I mean, even people, Chinese Americans with multi-generational ancestry are misidentified as perpetual foreigners, right? I mean, that's, uh, that's one of the ways in which Chinese Americans are not treated as complexly humane. So Bruce Lee gets here and his complex, in, his complex humanity is constantly being called into question. But another thing people don't know is Bruce Lee had one leg shorter than the other. Really? Yep. And one of the things I thought was really, slightly, not hugely, slightly. And one of the things that I thought was cool when I was growing up was he wore glasses, right? Mm -hmm. So he didn't have the best eyesight. Um, So, you know, he's, he has, he's um, differently abled to some extent. So here you have someone who's differently abled who is a martial arts sensation. He understood that people were treating him as something less than complex. So even though he never used the word intersectionality, he seemed to have an understanding of how it operated and how it could affect you and how people would see you as something that you aren't. Um, But what I love about Bruce Lee, I mean, there's some patriarchy stuff going on in Bruce Lee and his language and stuff and things he said, like, he once apparently said that he didn't think a female fighter would be ever, 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 ever as good as a male fighter, though he knew some really good female fighters. But here is someone in the 1960s who's, who's teaching women. And that wasn't common, right? Mm-hmm. But when I heard that he said that, I'm like, ah, I want to get in a time machine and go back and kick his you-know-what. But anyway. <laughs> of course. So I teach about that, you know, here is someone who's aware of his social identities. He's aware that they're socially constructed. So he's not going to just give in to them. And so it just, it's just an interesting way to teach. And, you know, I call it intersectionality instead right. of intersectionality. Yeah, definitely. So. And Do then you- when, you, when you use Bruce Lee to teach a concept like that, people are like, all ears. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Do you feel like his awareness of how those different social forces came to define him in other people's eyes either directly affected or maybe just reflected the way that he was sort of 
unorthodox and multidisciplined about the way he kind of put together his martial arts philosophies? You don't copy him. Like people who would copy Bruce Lee, they miss this whole point. He's, he's don't be like me, be you, right? So um, yeah, yeah, you got, and you have to kind of do what works for you. And then don't just, he was against like fitting into boxes or being forced into boxes, you know? So, you know, he said, what, um, no way is way. And that's, that's not to say that anything you, anything you do goes, but you don't want to have a fixed way. You want to have access to multiple ways of doing things. And I think that reflects in that people boxed him in, but he refused to be boxed in. And then and I think that shows also in the way that he's teaching. His first, his first student is Jesse Glover, a black man. Bruce Lee's right. first student is a black man. So I'm sure, I mean, I would, uh, Jesse Glover has since passed. I would have loved to have spoken to him to find out. And, but I would guess that Jesse Glover, a black man, probably had been boxed in. People had seen him in stereotypical ways. And then here, here comes Bruce Lee, who doesn't do that to him. Many people kind of understand or ascertain his iconic status, but may not understand many or any of, of the layers to him. What do you feel like is his most um, under-recognized quality, Lori? One of the first times that I saw Bruce Lee that, that seemed to be the Bruce Lee that I, you know, that I, that I thought he was from reading it. This, and again, this is like seventh grade, eighth grade. Um, there's a television show called Long Street. And he, I think, appears on like three or four episodes of this television show. And Long Street is, uh, I think he's a police detective, but he's blind. Mm. And in this episode, in the early part of the episode, he's attacked. And so Bruce Lee comes in to teach him. And I found that episode really, it seemed like that was Bruce Lee to me, you know, more so than seeing him in the movies, because in the movies, I knew he was playing a character. And then I would go on to read from from Taki Kimura, another one of his first students, or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And they would talk about the one-on-one, the way he worked with people. Um, So I think that people maybe don't get that. Because mm-hmm. he's flashy, people get that he's cocky. I'm like, yeah, but he could back it up. Right. So was Muhammad Ali, but Muhammad Ali was was. But then I got I, I never got to touch Bruce Lee, which is probably a good thing because sure. I probably would never wash my hand. I would probably have like some serious disease right now, but I did get a chance to touch Muhammad Ali. You did? You know? Oh yeah, oh, that's great. Yeah. And I didn't wash my hand for like, I tried to go for a week, but after like two days, I'm like, this is ridiculous. But um, sure. I think you showed us the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar fight from Game of Death in one of the classes. Do you And I was wondering, do you remember why that would have been other than it's awesome? <laughs> <laughs> I guess a good question because I always find a way. I mean, it's a thing I do. I, I try to find a way to bring Bruce Lee into any class I teach. Um, maybe I was also trying to show the the kind of here's the 70s and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is wearing these glasses. You got this like black exploitation yeah. thing going on. Right. But it wasn't it wasn't done to minimize. It wasn't done. You know, Bruce Lee wasn't trying to minimize in any way. No. Um, and then in that in that particular movie, 
um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was the last person Bruce Lee fought. Yep. Yeah, I watched it last night. Yeah, he mm-hmm. was the last person Bruce Lee fought. So Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bruce Lee put Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at the top. Right. He's climbing the pagoda, and Kareem is like the last level. Because these other people, the other martial artists, I know that one's like a grappler. Another one is Dan Ansanto, and he does Escrima. Um, another one is like a... So he, you know, the, the pagoda is representing different styles but then you get to kareem abdul jabbar and you're like what the heck <laughs> what style is this yes, exactly and i think that i think that bruce lee's making the. i always thought that bruce lee was making the point about that another thing that people don't maybe don't know about bruce lee is that growing up he scrapped he fought he fought in real fights you know i hated the once upon a time in america um scene where you have this fake actor, you know, picking a fight with Bruce Lee and picking right. him up and throwing that that never happened. Nothing like that happened to that extent. And I don't think Bruce Lee ever said anything disrespectful about Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. Actually, according to Raymond Chow, he said, "Oh my God, Muhammad Ali would 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 pummel me or something." Really? That's not a direct quote. Yeah. Oh, okay. He go. had great respect for Muhammad Ali. He wasn't cocky in that way. I don't think people. Yeah, that's another thing that I don't think people realize. But he he was a fighter. He fought for real. He fought mm-hmm. in real fights. So then in his movies, he he wanted the, th- the 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 sequences to be believable. And that's what I wanted to do when I saw Bruce Lee. I wanted to move like him. Well, I wanted to use martial arts, not to copy him specifically, but I wanted to do real things, you know, not stop and fly across the air for like 15 steps and then land on the ground, right? So, um, yeah, that's the, that's the beauty that I saw in his film. And I think Black Americans also saw a way to empower themselves in a real way, you know. They, they, you couldn't be Clark Kent, but you could learn martial arts and build your power and build your personal power. You just said I I didn't want to copy Bruce Lee, but I was curious as a young martial artist, was there like a move of his that you remember trying to be like, can I do this? Can people do this? A powerful sidekick. Okay. What is that for the layman? So a sidekick, you know, you got different kicks, but a sidekick, literally you, you kick to the side. Bruce Lee had one. Of, so if you look at Enter the Dragon, oh, you know, the fight with, with O'Hara, Right. When Bruce Lee like jumps and kicks him and he goes flying into the chairs behind him. Yeah. Yeah. That was real. They actually padded Bob Wall up so that Bruce Lee could really kick him. Nice. And so I had seen Bruce Lee demonstrate that. I think there was some other footage that I'd seen or I'd seen pictures of it, of him like doing this powerful sidekick. Because also I always tell women with kicking the, the key is to put your hip into that kick. Mm-hmm. You, you commit to it and you put your hip and you kick through the target that you're going at. And the last one I wanted to ask is, for some reason I had this question in my head. If you were, say, five minutes out from a meeting that you were a little tense about or may, were making you a little nervous, what Bruce Lee clip would you cue up to get hyped and in the right headspace? Is there a scene yeah. 
boards don't hit back. Boards don't hit back. I think there are times when you can feel like you're 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 not people won't respect you. People might disrespect you. Um, but if you got and that skill you have might not be physical. It might be something else. And that if someone doesn't realize that you got some skill coming, hmm. then when they try to reduce you, you could be like, all right, boards, don't hit back. You don't know what I'm about to come at you with. And I think we have to cultivate that and cultivate it not to abuse people, but cultivate it against bullies, people who would like rob from us who we are and try to, you know, so, and that's another thing. I love that Bruce Lee was an anti-bully. He didn't pick fights with people. What, what would he have to prove to pick fights with people that he could easily defeat? So, and that would also play a role with me as a competitor. I was more likely to step into the ring with somebody that could knock me out. <laughs> and luckily I never got knocked out. Like I did get the wind knocked out on me one time that, that didn't feel good at all. But then just to, to to abuse someone that was easy to to defeat, and I think that that's uh, Bruce Lee impact on, upon me and and my mama, but she wouldn't put up with that either. I think those are wonderful takeaways, uh, Lori. Thank you so much for talking. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Chance. I'm looking forward to hearing this. Roper, Williams, and Lee, the Deadly Three, penetrate. The secret chambers of an evil island empire. What do you know about Han? He lives like a king on that island. Totally self-sufficient. A fortress without walls. Protected by an invincible army that needs no ordinary weapons. This is Enter the Dragon. The first martial arts film produced by a major Hollywood studio. John Saxon is Roper. He was in it for the money. U.S. Karate Champion Jim Kelly as Williams. He was there because he had no choice. Black Belt Hall of Fame undisputed martial arts champion and international film star Bruce Lee. His job was to get them out alive. Thank you, Lori. That was great. That sounded like a wonderful conversation, Chance. It was. It was so great to reconnect with her. And a funny bit was like when I was like, is Lori going to want to do this? I can't quite remember like how how much of a thing bruce lee is and i went back and looked at an old email and her like avatar on her email was bruce lee and i was like all right i think we're good <laughs> yeah that's great all right let's talk about enter the dragon um so this is 1973 this is a posthumous movie by the time it makes it out um which I, for some reason to me is always like kind of crazy considering Game of Death is like glaringly posthumous movie, but so is this one. Um, it's a co-production between um, Hollywood and Hong Kong, uh, between Fred Weintraub at, at Warner Brothers and uh, Raymond Chow. Noah, what's our synopsis? A secret agent, that's Bruce Lee, comes <laughs> to an opium lord's island fortress with other fighters for a martial arts tournament. There's a kind of counterintuitive thing that happens here, right? Where Bruce Lee has to share his time more than he has in any of these other movies. But I think he comes out looking 
better than ever by virtue of the structure and the shared time, if that makes sense. Do you know what I'm saying? For sure. I think the movie gives more narrative reason and more stakes to the other guys. And by the other guys, I mean John Saxon and Jim Kelly playing Roper and Williams, respectively. Because uh, with Saxon, you see, with Roper, you see that he owes people money. So he has to, like, come to the island to, like, earn some scratch so he don't get, doesn't get his kneecaps broken or something. And then with Williams, you see kind of, like, in a pretty early look at, like, racial profiling by the police in the United States that forces him to leave the country. And presumably he needs the money from this tournament to like begin a life in a non extradition country. But I would say that this movie for a second thinks that it's like a James Bond movie. So we kind of have the cold open with Bruce Lee, you know, at his school again. And then like the professor emeritus is like, Hey man, like, I think you got it. Like, you should go to this tournament that sounds roughly like the Olympics, but is run by a Bond villain. Mm-hmm. It, Yeah, when you're just like watching all three of them on different ships and uh, Jim Kelly Williams has that great line of like ghettos, man. They're the same everywhere. Um, it's just like like epic Hollywood adventure filmmaking in the best way to me of like the sure. orca pulling out into the ocean and Jaws. Like, here we go. Let's go. As, right. Let's let the axe turn over right now. Well, it's this bizarre fusion of almost like three strands of exploitation movie. Right. Like you have the Hong right. Kong exploitation, you have black exploitation, and then you have like the New York Italian mafia stuff exploitation. Uh, and so they're all sort of coming together, but then eventually ending up in a very Hollywood like secret island of Dr. Somebody kind totally. of premise, uh, which... I think, you know, they really do go for it. Like, if he had gotten to the island, if any of them had gotten to the island, they didn't maintain their individual stakes or their individual narratives. And if the movie, like, weren't so kind of unhinged as to make it about, like, opium and sex trafficking, you know, like, it might be a, like, lamer movie. But it really doesn't have any scruples about just going for as many things as they can. It's true. And then have this martial arts movie totally around that. Again, with so many people. So Bob Wall is back as like the hothead O'Hara. Bolo Young, who I just love, is there as Bolo. Um, You know, Hans, one of Hans' lead henchmen, who in one of the best scenes of the movie dispatches some of Hans' other henchmen who've done a bad job. Um, So Bruce Lee here understands that the secret agent James Bond formula is a golden ticket to affirm the Hollywood stardom that he's been chasing for eight, nine years. But to the Chinese audiences to whom he's become a hero, fealty to the British is repulsive. Like they were just absolutely hated at the time in the post opium war years. So uh, Mr. Lee's relationship to Braithwith, the, the you know the Tweedy British guy, is like I have a mission. I think oh, and with the incompetent, he, yeah, yeah and he's like taking a nap when the phone call comes in to have the cavalry show up. Yeah, that's where I think you have the apotheosis of his observations of Steve McQueen and him figuring out what those are. Where you have 
the lines that are doing so much geopolitical dancing of Lee's asking Braithwith, so after I've got the evidence, you'll come to the island? And Braithwith goes, oh, yes, someone will. And Bruce Lee just kind of rolls his eyes and goes, oh. So, like, he needs to take the mission from the British to move the plot and to be the movie star. But he also has to be sardonic in exactly the right way to show that, like, you're not my boss without having dialogue that actually, you know, spills that out because it's not a dialogue-heavy movie. It's a very clever dance. For sure. And there's that great scene, too, with Williams and Roper when they're trying to con the guy who's betting on the fights with the Hitler mustache. Great scene. And it's all eye acting. He just basically says, get him like to three to seven or whatever odds he wants. Right. And once he gets them there, there's just like a look and a nod. And then Roper just like lands this ridiculous haymaker and the fight's over. I think John Saxon is very likable and the Roper character is like very interesting. I think that once the movie tries to sort of solidify him into a moral being... That feels like yeah. that's not the character I was watching, and it's not what I liked about it either. He doesn't quite land that moment where Han is like, welcome to my secret lair, and like, here's your friend who's about to get eaten by my shark pit or whatever, right. and he's just kind of like, I gotta pass. Like, this is impressive and all, but <laughs> that was my friend. Yeah, Um I think Ed Saxon's career bears this out. He is like good. It's the third or fourth person, but like he's not meant yeah. to have the star turn, which Bruce Lee was vehemently fighting against because he felt correctly that the Warner Brothers people were going to rework the script to make Roper the main character at all times. Right. It's very telling that like the last real action shot of Roper is him like sitting. Yeah. Like we're in the stands of this pre this fight that's gone to seed because everyone's fighting like everywhere. And he's just like sitting, catching his breath. I also think too, Bruce Lee's great. Like in the, I mean, very bond climax of like him going through the tunnels of the cave lair and like hiding behind the opium contraptions in the different laboratories and stuff. Throwing and that then, like, real snake around. Well, I think this movie is good, too, because in that, the moment when he's chasing down Han in the mirror room, yeah. you know, and we didn't even mention the fact that Han's got a fucking metal hand <laughs> that he can, like, swap in for other metal hands with, claw. like, bigger and bigger, yeah, knives and claws and stuff. Um, but he's, like, bloody Bruce Lee when he's in the mirror room. And he's, like, using blood to mark the mirrors that are the mirrors so he can kind of tell yeah. where Han's going to be coming from. And to me, like, you know, it almost feels like we're pushing against the limits of that Bruce Lee thing in that moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, of course, it's also – you know, there's there's some deeper meaning to the, the the shot of Han sort of rotating as the door goes around that he's been spiked on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that really, I think, this movie lets Bruce Lee have human edges, I think, more than the other two. Okay. Uh, in a really intriguing way where it's like, is he going to go down like he did in the first one or is he going to make it like he did in the second one? Like, how is this going to work out? Yeah, the 
the four claw disfigurement that he sort of starts to have on each cheek and each peck and each arm yeah does feel yeah like how much how much brutality can he can he take how much but it, but it's all still very perfect right it's like how much perfect disfigurement can this perfect body withstand i don't know it's interesting um we should say too this movie also there are some unproduced bruce lee scripts and i mean there are some myriad tragedies to his death but one of them is that he wanted to start making much deeper movies about his martial arts philosophies most of which the studio execs in both america and hong kong were like no um but it starts <laughs> to <laughs> but it does seep into this one in an interesting way and you get to hear bruce lee's voice for the first time um when he's speaking english and when he's kind of explaining to his train trainee like you're not thinking but you're not dreaming either he he has a great voice. Like he has the perfect tonality of someone who spent a decade um, teaching students and understands what a teacher should sound like. So you have that. And then you have uh, Han also kind of expresses a philosophy that I think that Lee has to fight against, which Han says it is strength that makes all other values possible. Like none of the other ones matter. Um, And so those things are at war when they make it into the mirror room. A good martial artist does not become tense, but ready. Not thinking, yet not dreaming. Ready for whatever may come. When the opponent expands, I contract. When he contracts, I expand. And when there is an opportunity, I do not hit. It hits all by itself. My favorite line, I think, in the whole movie is when Williams and uh, Han are having their their big showdown. Williams goes, Mr. Han, suddenly I wish to leave your island. (laughs) He goes, it is not possible. And Williams freaks out and goes, bullshit, Mr. Han, man. (laughs) It is so – because he's had like the – the idea that he's been saying Han is like a, a level of respect, but then just yes, like puts an totally. American spin on Han. I mean, it's the same way that like, I mean, in Star Wars, it happens too uh, for the same effect. That's, I don't let your weird Lando conspiracy theory about we have to save Han. I've never bought into, but the rest of your point I love. This movie's a good, good. And I think great. I hadn't seen it since like chunks of it on TV as a kid. And it's, it's really incredible. Um, just like the production value of the combat outdoors. Like I love the establishing shot of the tournament space where those flags are just whipping in the wind the entire time. And it's like, I don't know if that's just good luck with the weather on that day or like a real commitment to putting visual over sound. Cause they didn't have to worry about it, but like it just, it feels epic and it doesn't yes even though it was made for five hundred thousand dollars which is dirt cheap by hollywood standards that was expensive for hong kong standards and the level up in mm. production value is great yeah yeah there's a great shot similar to that one where when they're introducing the island they just sort of pan over the different groups of guys working out and it's like there's big sound underneath it. It's like, Oh, there must be like a couple hundred people here. But then you kind of realize that it may be like closer to a thousand people in this shot. Mm -hmm. And it's just like totally nuts that they, this is like one continuous take 
that was recorded for the sake of this movie. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think this is, if it's not already, should be regarded as like a classic action movie uh, that you can definitely tell. I mean, that mirror sequence alone is copied by 10 movies after, if not more. Totally. Game of Death, I would encourage folks, you could watch the first 10 minutes to see what's absolutely sort of hilariously, morbidly wrong with it, and then watch the last 10 minutes to see the stuff that Lee filmed with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Have you seen the Kareem fight? No. I would YouTube it. It's incredible to watch someone who's 5'7 fight someone who's 7'2". And then I would be interested to hear if, I mean, any people in our audience have it or have made it this long. There's supposed to be a redux, like a 30 minute re edit of the Bruce Lee pagoda footage in game of death. That's on the criterion thing that people say is amazing, but you can't find it online. So if anyone has the blu-ray hit us up and let us know if it's cool. Um, My friend, this was such a, a great crash course to do with you. For sure. I, we thank uh, Jeff Chang and Lori Dance so so deeply, so sincerely. We'll be back in December with a episode based around Mank, the new Fincher. Jazzed about that. And uh, yeah, happy Thanksgiving, man. Um, I hope you can hope you can find stuff to be thankful for in these weird, weird times. Yeah, as I eat my bodega turkey sandwich. Uh... <laughs> I'll I'll make sure to count this podcast among the things I'm thankful for. (laughs) 